uh, wife of Jackson, and it's always such an honor to be up here for you guys. Um, with us going to Fiji and Seth and Joe already there, Gordy's got his hands full with a lot of weeks in a row, so I'm here to just help lighten the load, and I'm excited. Um, God's put something on my heart to share with you guys, and it was a beautiful process to watch it unfold as I was studying this week, and Gordy gave me a little extra time, so I've had a few weeks to um, study, but really this week I did a lot of it. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. And with um, Seth and Joe in Fiji this week, um, man, I kind of got emotional seeing that picture there because Kai and River are buddies, and so it's going to be hard to not have Kaya's little twin cousin around. Um, but I was just thinking of when we're together with Seth and Joe, um, we have this table, and Seth and Joe have this dining table that is probably only about this high, because as the years went by, they kept chopping the legs of this table, so it just sits in their living room, and that's the dining room table. Um, and when the girls were starting to learn to walk, they, um, it was really funny because they would come up to the table and they try to climb on it because it was just that right height. So they're practicing their, you know, their arm skills and they're getting these good maneuvers. But because of the capability of their body and just not being able to understand much, it, we just had to say no climbing on the table. So we had this rule no climbing on the table. And it was really hard for them because it's just right there and within reach. Well, one day we were coming over and we walk in the door and River's standing on the table. And I'm like, Joe, <laughs> she's on the table. Like, <laughs> um, should I tell her to get off? And Joe's like, so we have a new rule. They can be on the table as long as there's no food or drink on the table. And I was like, oh, great. I've been working on Kaya. I've been telling her, don't get on the table. And we like, I think we finally got the message across, and she was understanding it. And I'm like, great. So now what am I going to do? Am I going to tell Kaya to not get on the table while River's dancing on it? <laughs> so I adjusted. I was like, all right. We're going to follow these rules, okay? And um, next thing we know, I'm like, okay, Kaya, you can get on the table with River. She is so stoked. She knew exactly what I was saying, and she got on that table. And these girls dance. <laughs> this is actually a video. I, like, had to pause it and then screenshot it. But Kaya's doing her little twirls, and River's doing her dancing. Oh, I think downstairs is connecting to our TV. <laughs> um, but anyways, I was thinking about this, and there's something really beautiful about the relationship with parent and child, and how when they're super young and their um, capability to understand is very limited, we use very black and white terms. No, you can do this. Yes, you can do this. Even though that may not be our full desire, we kind of have to adjust to what they're able to understand and what they're even capable of understanding. Because even if I explain to her, 
can't get on the table because you're, you're not quite stable enough and there might be something on the table you're not supposed to get into. And so they're just not able to fully understand. Um, but as they grow, I have to adjust with them. And I think it's this beautiful image. Whenever I am struggling to understand God in the Old Testament terms and how he's relating to his people in these very, like, seemingly black and white, like, would God really say that? Is God really allowing this? I, it really helps to think of him as relating to humanity in their toddler phase. Like, in the Old Testament, we're still growing and learning. And so it's really helpful for me to see, like, just how I am going to adjust with Kaya. And as she becomes a teenager, it's really going to change. I'm going to have to start giving her more freedom. And, like, guidelines, but with more freedom. Um, a, a mentor of mine once explained, there's two ways to raise your children. You have the pyramid, or you have... I can't remember what she called this one. But it's where if you start with strict boundaries and rules and expand, you seem to find that your child is a lot more cooperative than if you go the reverse. Lots of freedom in the beginning. And then you realize, oh, no, i got to tighten up the reins. That doesn't work as well. And I'm sure all of you can relate if you think back to your teenage years and how your parents handled you trying to grow and experience freedom. Um, so the reason I kind of brought up this story is um, we're going to go into James chapter 2. So a lot of you have been here, but I've been going, when Gordy's let me preach, I just started in James, and I'm kind of just rolling with it. So we finished James chapter 1, which is just an overview of the entire book of James. And so now we're uh, moving into chapter 2, and... The reason I wanted to bring up like how God relates to us is because James uses the example of Old Testament ways to help us understand the new way that Jesus is bringing. So let's go ahead and just jump into the verses. Oh yeah, and my title is The Way to the Table, and that will slowly be revealed to you as we go. <laughs> okay, we can go ahead and go to verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become um, judges with evil thoughts. So that's his opening line of chapter two. It's just a little bit of a story. Um, let's go ahead and go to the next section. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So a few observations and questions. 
why is James attacking the rich? Is it really that bad to have money? And kind of my first observation is thinking back to the culture of their time where there was massive cultural segregation between the rich and the poor in that time. And so this is, he's kind of using this as an example. Now, it's not bad to have a lot of money. That's not what he's saying. Um, he's more referencing the culture and what was a big disconnect at the time. Also, I couldn't help but notice, he refers back to Jesus's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, his opening line. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I had to ask myself again, like, okay, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does it mean you're spiritually poor? <laughs> does it mean, like, I was, I was trying to think of all the different, like, ways to, to break it up. Does it mean that you're just a bad person? Does it mean, like, I was trying to break it up. Like, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And how can it fully encompass what Jesus is trying to get at? And it kind of dawned on me. This is my own definition, but it kind of, this, this came to me, and it really, like, made sense. The ones who have had their spirit broken again and again. Jesus is talking to the ones who have had the most taken from them in this domain. And he's talking, he's saying that for those of you who are on the fringes, who have been disregarded by society, who have had their dignity and just everything stripped from them, blessed are you. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because you have the capacity to receive the most from what God has to offer. Because it's been what's been taken from this world, you now have this open space to receive what God has for you. And so I think James is using this example to, to remind us of Jesus' passage on the Sermon on the Mount. Because remember, and I talked about this when I introduced James, but James is talking to the Jews the former Jews, who are now Christians, in Jerusalem. Okay, so they're like really familiar. Like they were all there or at least have secondhand knowledge of Jesus' ministry. So they're very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. So he's just referencing back to that. All right, let's go ahead and go to um, James 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So the royal law, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this term. Um, I'm pretty sure James coined this term. I'm not sure, I'm not positive. It may have been someone else. Um, Jesus didn't necessarily come up with this term. But it is referring to when Jesus was asked, Jesus, what? is the most important commandment. Now, when he was asked this question, they were asking, which of our Mosaic law would you say is the most important? And of course, 
Jesus didn't really answer their question. But he, he did in a way. He said, um, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the most important commandment. Um, so James kind of has like taken that. And when he's referring to the royal law, you can kind of put it under that umbrella. It refers to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So I was looking up the definition of the royal law because another way James calls it, he calls it this further down and earlier, it's, he calls it the law of freedom. And I love that because, think about it, the law of freedom is so paradoxical. Like a law and freedom together just doesn't feel like it should fit. And Jesus loves paradox, so it only makes sense. Um, but I was looking up the definition of it, and in the blue letter Bible, if you guys are familiar with that, it gives, like, the Greek definitions of the words. And it, go, it says, the liberty to do or to omit things, having no relationship to salvation. I was like, okay. So you can kind of just sit with that for a little bit. The law of freedom, the liberty to do or omit things, having no relationship to salvation. Now, in the past, all humanity has ever known about law is that as long as you do or don't do these things, you are safe. You are acceptable and you will be free of punishment. So it's very conditional, which is why the term law of freedom is such a paradox. Um... And I was, I, as I was, like, sitting with this term, I was realizing, like, he's kind of intending to, like, put up our antennas. Like, let's question this a little bit. What does this mean? Um, so, first off, Jesus came and brought this new way. And in bringing this new way, he's, like, opening our understanding to God even more. So as we're growing from toddlers, like in the stage of humanity, as we're growing from toddlers to children to teenagers, um, God's adjusting with us. First, it's this like hands-on, like he's always communicating like very directly to his people and like helping them along the way. And then you see in Exodus, he kind of steps away and is like, here's some rules that will help you live life. Like, if you can follow these, this will help you navigate, but it means that I'm going to, like, kind of let you figure these things out. So he's kind of stepping away, just as a parent would with a teenager. We're not so hands-on, because we all know that doesn't work. <laughs> we get a little pushback with that, and it doesn't allow us to grow. Um, so basically, yeah, so Jesus is just opening this idea for us. So that we can be motivated by love and love alone. We're no longer motivated by what we're going to get by doing the right thing. Oh, if I just do all these right things, then I'm good. It's like, no. Guys, Jesus came. He came to die. And this is the most christian term. It is. We say it all the time. But I want you to try to hear this with, like, a new mindset, with, like, a freshness. Like, 
Jesus came and died so that we no longer had to worry about whether we're good or not, whether we're accepted or not. He's expanding the box that which we're coming from. We're no longer stuck in this set of rules and conditions. He's saying, no, 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 I've got you. Now let's move forward with love. Love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love yourself. We are being called to be a part of something so much bigger than being obedient. We're being called to be with people. And he's giving us the freedom to do it. We can eat pork now, you know. We can eat pork with the Greeks. We can wear yarmulkes with the Jews. Like God's like, I don't care about this stuff. You needed that when you were growing and expanding. You needed that box because without it, you didn't feel safe. The world was too big, too scary, too unknown. So I gave you this box, and in it you could rest and grow. But guess what? As you grow, the box gets smaller. And it almost comes to a point where now you're like growing, and you're like, okay, something's got to change here because I'm either going to stop growing or my box is going to break. And usually God uses a little disorder to shake things up, like leaving Egypt, like the wilderness, <laughs> like Jesus coming. And they had been, before Jesus came, they had the Romans keeping everything in order. They had the religious leaders keeping the law to the T. And things were nice and orderly. And then Jesus comes and goes, I got to bring something new in. These guys are ready to grow, but I got to shake things up first. <laughs> so he comes in and he shakes things up. So there's usually this natural progression of order, disorder, reorder. And this cycle doesn't stop because we continue to grow. And each time we're ready for a new container, God's going to shake things up. Or we might shake it up for him because we're like, oh, I can't grow. <laughs> I like the image of the new wine old wineskins. We're just going to bust through or we stop growing. So anyways, um, let's go to the next verse. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So I feel like James's language has kind of switched here. Um, he got, it feels very conditional. And it feels very strict. But we have to remember that these guys are really comfortable in the old law. They're really comfortable with things being this or that. You either are doing it right or you're off, you're off on the side. Like there's no in-between. And I think he's seeing that they're falling back to that because naturally we do. Even though we're growing, we'll fall back into our old ways of living. And I think he's seeing this. So he's using the language that they're really familiar with 
the Mosaic Law in order to help bring this new idea to them. Um, and I think basically he's saying, like, guys, just how in the old law, if you say, I'm keeping the law because I don't commit adultery. Yet last week you killed someone because you got in an argument and it didn't go so well. You're not exactly good. So he's using these terms to be like, guys, like, you're not good. You're not keeping the law if you killed someone <laughs> just because you're doing this right. And so I think James is saying, guys, we go around saying, I love God. I love Jesus. Isn't Jesus the best? I love God. I am upholding my Christian, the Christian commandment, the new law. And yet, when someone we don't agree with, someone who did something wrong to us, someone who's hurt us, someone who doesn't follow the same set of beliefs as us, and we say, yeah, I love almost everyone, but these people just, I can't. They're just not in line with what I believe. God's saying, then you don't love me at all. If you can't love the people on the outside, the ones who have been cast away from society, the least of these, the ones who have had their spirit broken over and over again because they don't fit in your box, then you can't possibly love me because guess what? When you clothe the naked, you clothe me. When you feed the hungry, you're feeding me. When you visit the prisoners, you visited me. And so you can't say you're good because you've got nice clothes on and you have a ring on your finger. Come sit in the place of honor. And then someone shows up ragged and dirty and you disregard them. It's the same it's the same thing. And I think James is really trying to get this point across. We can go to verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. You can go ahead and go to the next verse. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, he's sounding conditional. But really, if we look into it, it's cause and effect. This is the new litmus test for the law of freedom. And James... I was, I was kind of sitting with this, and I realized James isn't saying anything new. This is something that Jesus has reiterated before. Um, in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, when Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, he says this. Um, I don't know if I had it in my notes, but. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Again, it feels conditional and transactional. 
But I think it's just so matter of fact in Jesus' mind that if you are resentful and bitter towards someone or even just a particular type of person, then you will not be able to adjoin the same thing. Like if, if um, God has invited, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, he invited all of us. He opened the invitation for Jews, Gentiles, pagans, whatever, wherever your background is, Jesus opened the door to everyone. It's no longer just the Jews, the chosen one, the Israelites. He's saying it's open now to everyone. Now guess what? Someone you don't agree with or someone you're angry with, someone you hate, someone you are against, they might accept that invitation because it's open for them. And guess what? The ones who we can't stand, the ones that we've outcast and thrown to the side, the poor in spirit, they might be the first to be there. They might be the first to run to Jesus. So when we show up to ask God for forgiveness, when we show up to sit at the table, at the feast that Jesus has prepared for us, and that person is sitting there next to him, are you going to be able to go? Are you going to be able to go and be welcomed by Jesus and this person whom you hate? Jesus is kind of banking that you won't if there's an unforgiveness in your heart towards that person, which is why he's, he makes this sound like a law because in a way it's so, so important. You will not be able to receive my forgiveness if you can't forgive And I was looking up the difference between mercy and forgiveness. And at first I was like, there's no difference at all. And then I was kind of reading and I realized mercy is an act of showing kindness to someone who does not deserve it. Forgiveness is letting go of the score of resentment and bitterness. It's when someone does something to you and you are now given this thing, and you can either throw it back at them, you know, give them the cold shoulder, give them a little jab, passive aggressive. We have lots of ways of returning it. Or maybe we pass it to the person next to us. We're driving, and we're just like throwing the bird at people because someone else made us mad, so we're just going to take it out on this person, you know, and keep the cycle going. But Jesus is saying, let go. Go of the score. I did it for every single one of you. Now I've shown you how to do it. Mercy benefits others. Forgiveness benefits you. Forgiveness benefits you. It's really, I just want us to like sit with that. When we're holding on to those things, we're the ones weighed down by it. Most of the time, I'm bitter about something that the other person has no idea about. So I can't count on them coming to me saying, I'm sorry. I have to find that within myself a lot of the times. 
Um, I just wanted to kind of like close this. I know this is a lot and it can even sound like pretty intense. And like, well, Abby is kind of crazy. Like the, all this stuff sounds a little insane. I don't know if I'm jiving with it. I feel a little defensive. Um, so I just wanted to share one of the parables that Jesus responds to the Pharisees with when they're offended that he's sitting and conversing and eating with sinners and tax collectors. Um, before he goes into the parables, this is kind of the context. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Tax collectors, the most hated by society, the Romans, the Jews, the Israelites, like everyone hates tax collectors, matter of fact. <laughs> and sinners, the people that all the religious people hate. We're all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus responded with three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, the lost son. I'm going to share the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. No questions asked. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. The dark night of the soul. <laughs> I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired for servants. So he got up and went to his father. This guy has been stripped of everything. He is hungry. He is dirty. He has lost his dignity. He has lost his morality. Everything. And now, what's left but to run back to the Father? Run back to the Father. <laughs> um, wait, where was I? But while he was still, okay, there we go. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. The servant replies, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So I have a question for you guys. Who's keeping the older son from the feast? Is Jesus saying, no, sorry. Is God saying, no, sorry, you're not accepted anymore. To either of them. The invitation is wide open. And it always has been. The father has not put any conditions on either of the sons to come join the party. The older son is staying away because he's angry and bitter and jealous. He's holding his younger brother in a heart of unforgiveness. And it's keeping him from the feast. There's another story that Jesus tells, um, just really briefly. But he talks about how this father, again, comes to two sons. This is kind of what cued me in. And he says, will you guys go and work my field? And one son responds, Horribly and goes, nah, I'm not doing that. Are you kidding me? But by the end of the day, towards the later half of the day, he goes and he works the field. The father goes, asks the other son, and his response is, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I'll do it. He is obedient. He is on it. He's saying, yes, sir. And he never goes. And Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees, and he asked them, who did the will of the father? And they respond, well, the first son, because he went. And I think it's just another beautiful way of Jesus trying to break down these walls that we have. These walls that we think we know. Who's in and who's out. I don't even like those terms anymore. But we think we can be judges as that. And James is saying, no. Those are evil motives. This new law says just love. Love your neighbor and forgive them just like I did. Because guess what? Just like Kaya and River, there's times when we're having the interaction at the table. And let's say one of them, usually it's Kaya, is feeling a little sleepy or a little frustrated, or maybe she's in a stage of development where her bubble's just a little bit wider, and so she doesn't want to interact with River. And so she'll, like, kind of just, like, if River does something, if she's holding a toy that Kaya wants or, I don't know, on the table at all, then Kaya's just, like, she just gets all pouty and she just falls on the floor and she just, ah! <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> um, but as a parent, I can promise you, from the perspective of a parent, 
the most beautiful moment is when both of those girls are just dancing on that table. They're just dancing together. And it's beautiful. And my, my hope and my prayer, guys, for this morning, and just like the intention that I have is that we can... Well, I'll use another example of Jesus's. He, again, was interacting with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he healed someone on the Sabbath, and they're not happy about it. And so he asked them. He says, guys, is it better for me to uphold the law of the Sabbath or to help this person out of the ditch or to heal this person? And because this question was a trap, they didn't respond. So Jesus responds again in just the best way. But um, when you're thinking about do I, if you have a friend or a person or a spouse or someone that you just, you just want to help them. They're just, they're just off the path a bit. And you just, you're like, man, I just got to give them some tough love. Be like, yo, you need to get out of that ditch. This path is awesome, and uh, yeah, you need to come on it. So we can have that approach where we need them to get in the boat with us or, and follow the laws, you know, but like we're not going to break the law to do it. We're going to stay on the path. Or we can get our clothes dirty. Maybe that means losing a bit of your reputation with whatever group you're trying to hold your reputation with. And we just get in the ditch and we help them out. And maybe they don't even want help out. So then we just sit with them. And we just give them some company. And if you're asking yourself, do I need to change this person and speak the fear of God into them and get them on the get them doing the right things and help them clean up morally? Or do I just go meet them where they're at? Because guess what? I'm pretty sure Jesus would do one of those two things. And whatever that is, I would say do that. Whichever one Jesus is demonstrating to you that he would do, I would say just do that. Now, I'm going to close with um, something Jackson shared, oh, I think it was last week. Maybe it was two weeks ago. You can go ahead and come up, babe. And it's this, kind of this article. Um, but I just, he, he voiced already, and it's, it's a little wordy, and it's new. I feel like it's newish language, so it could be hard to hear, like, fully absorb it. So I want to share it again, especially because it's just so connected to, like, I don't know. It was just a really good closing statement. So I just kind of want to like say it over us to close this morning. Um, Jesus lived, breathed, and embodied a boundary subverting inclusion. If it's inclusive and wildly so, then you know you're warm. You are close to it. Nothing is excluded except excluding. We are, oh, okay, oh yeah, it is a little different. The gospel always wants to dislodge itself from the places where it gets stuck. 
and embedded in the narrow cultural structure. So we all take steps to free it, find our way again and again. Jesus says if you're not gathering, you're scattering. We can either pull people in or push people out. We are tr attract in the same way Jesus did. The disciples aren't sent out to create an institution fortified by uniformity, by laws and religion. Just another tribe highly defended against all outside forces. Certainly, Western, Western Christianity goofed some things up. It fostered separateness, it bet all its money on the sin horse, and it relied so heavily on external religious exercises. Clearly, we are being propelled into the world to cultivate a movement whose ventilating force is an extravagant tenderness. The disciples didn't leave Jesus' side with a fully memorized set of beliefs. Rather, theirs was a loving way of life that had become the air they breathed. God, I just want to acknowledge the stretch and the pull that you're doing inside of all of us. The, the growing pains that we might all be feeling this morning. And the hope, God. God, I hope that this morning we're just able to be given permission to see you as our hearts believe you to be. That God, when we're debating whether to love someone or clean them up, that we start with love. Because that's what you did always start with love. So Jesus, I just thank you for guiding me this morning, for every person in this room, for their open hearts, their souls, their presence. It's a gift. And the giver is good. In Jesus' name, amen.